MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Marcos Damian Leon, a teacher and writer from the Salinas Valley. He is a recent graduate of the University of California Riverside's MFA program and an incoming PhD student at Texas Tech University. His work has appeared in the LA Review of Books, the Asentos Review, Under the Gum Tree, and the Monterey County Weekly. He is currently working on a young adult novel about two boys deciding what kind of men they want to be, and he's brought an excerpt to read for us today. Dante walks up beside me, grabs onto my hand, and says, I'm sorry, I just, I want you to want to be here with me. He takes the first step down the sandy hill and pulls me along, breathing out. I don't know how to touch someone when the goal isn't to hurt them. I try not to squeeze Dante's hand or drag too far behind or walk too close. He leads me through the sand until our feet start to sink. Then he lets go of my hand and pulls off his Nikes. I take the chance to wipe my hand on my jeans. How am I sweating in this stupid wind? In, out. There's no sand getting into my shoes, but I take them off anyway. My eyes adjust to the dark, little by little, and the shrubs on the dunes take shape and the foam on the top of the wave contrasts against the blob, and I can just make out Dante's eyes, soft and glowing, staring at me. He's waiting for me to say something. I, I want to be with you, I say, because even through the nerves, I'm happy. Moonlight reflects off his teeth, so even though I can't see him clearly, I know he's got that dumb grin on his face where he smiles with the right half of his mouth and bites his left lower lip. <laughs> That's all I need to hear, he says. He smooths out a patch of sand with his foot and throws his blanket on top. Then he sits and faces the ocean. Sit with me. I move to the opposite side of his blanket, which isn't really that far, but he pats the spot right next to him. I can smell the coconut oil in his hair and something else, a cologne maybe, mixing with the salt in the air. He's leaning on his elbow, opening up his chest, his collarbone peeking out the top of his hoodie, and his hand is waiting on the blanket between us. This is what I wanted. It is. But maybe that's why I don't trust it. Dante wants me closer touching him, but I don't even hug anyone. I'd mess up doing anything more than holding hands. Why do you like me? I ask and sit on the edge that I'd already picked. He looks at me, this time without the dopey grin, and seems to think about it. My dad's from Veracruz. He told me that when he got here, he thought he'd made it. Then he realized that the other Mexicans didn't think of him as Mexican. To them, he was black. They treated him worse than the gringos. Uh, I thought you were mixed, I say, embarrassed to be like the people he's talking about. He shakes his head a little and says, No, soy mexicano como tú, güero. Sorry, I say. I'm used to it. All my life, my dad's told me that everyone's going to see me as different from them. So I got to be better than the Mexicans and the white people. I got to be so good that no one can look down on me. When I realized I was gay, I knew I couldn't tell him. I don't think he'd be mad. He'd probably understand it better than other people. But it's another reason for him to worry about me. So I decided I'd work three times as hard so that when he finds out, he won't have to worry any extra. None of this really answers my question, but I understand it all. I reach for his hand and squeeze it tight. 
he squeezes back in out the nervousness from earlier is gone but it's been replaced by a different one it's in my chest and my stomach and down in my toes i try to shake it out the way i would before a wrestling match it doesn't budge now i've got goosebumps too in out damn it i ask so then why do you like me you're the only person i know who tries as hard as i do hell maybe even harder at first i thought you were a dumb muscle head i smack my lips and pull my hand away but he snatches it back but when we spent time together i knew you got me deep down you were trying as hard as i was for the same reason he ends and looks at me and i mean really looks at me like if he blinks or loses focus i might be pulled under the waves they can't hurt you if you're stronger i say he nods and adds sorry maybe i was too ranty i guess I like you cuz I don't got to pretend to be strong around you and you don't got to pretend around me. I look to the ocean and wish it would drag me away. This this freedom should make me happy, but I don't want to seem weak, not even to Dante. I want to feel strong enough to protect myself and him and Jenny and me and even Miguel, but I don't, not now, not ever. What do you like about me? he asks. placing his hands softly on top of mine again i hadn't ever thought about the why i just knew that i did he was always smiling always making people laugh not like me where i smiled so jenny would leave me alone but genuine happiness that spread to everyone around him at first i was jealous then he noticed me and talked to me and i had to admit i was happier around him i wanted to know the secret to being happy in spite of being gay So I worked out and spent lunches with him and I realized he wasn't happy in spite of being gay. He was happy because he was wholly himself and everyone loved him for it. I say, I want to be happy like you. The waves slosh and the wind howls. That's part of it. I want to be happy, but there's something else too. I'm tired of being lonely. I add quieter because I haven't admitted that to myself before. Not really. the loneliness has always been there a monster hiding deep inside of me not like the ocean in front of me that i could run away from and never have to confront but like the hulk constantly fighting for control and if i give into it even for a second i would become the monster dante's perpetual smile capsized so i'm just the answer for your loneliness he asks Thank you so much for reading that and thanks for joining us Marcos. Yeah, uh thank you for having me. So I I love it when I'm reading something or in this case listening to something and a line jumps out at me and stays with me like bouncing around in my head after reading it. Um and there was a line here that did that for me and it was I don't know how to touch someone when the goal isn't to hurt them. And like from what you've told me about this project this line gets at that theme of masculinity that that I know you're trying to explore. So, do you mind just telling us uh, about the project, its themes and and why it's so important to you? So, this is my YA novel that I've been working on through the MFA. Uh and it started out a lot bigger, which I think is the case for a lot of people, especially beginning writers and MFAs, right? Where I wanted to have this like snapshot of a community. Um and I had a dozen characters and I was going to write a chapter from each of them. Um and as I submitted chapters as I kept working through it with my group, 
I realized everyone liked these two particular characters more than the rest. And they were these two characters that are cousins. One of them being Eddie that we, that I read about here. Um, the other Miguel, his cousin. And a big part of their relationship is Eddie is this hyper masculine wrestler. He's tall, he's muscular. He's like the very stereotypical meathead, I guess, which is what he's described as here. Um, but he's gay, so he doesn't feel like he actually lives up to his masculinity. He feels like he's, he's always got a chip on his shoulder, and part of that is his father. And the expectation of this machismo, this Mexican masculinity, and a very specific, aggressive, violent, dominating form of masculinity that he has to live up to. Uh, so with his chapters, with his perspective, more so than the other, I think, I'm exploring what exactly masculinity is and if it's something you could really earn or if it's something that you just have as a man. Well, I mean, you told me that like, uh, like you're really interested in how like history informs storytelling. So I'm curious if there's some part of like your own personal or cultural history that um, informs your writing of the story. I think it's something that goes into all of my writing in the sense that I read about sociological and gender studies ideas of Latinidad. Um, and so there's personal history here in the sense that my dad is the same as I'm building up Eddie's dad to be. He's very machista. He lives by this very traditional idea of masculinity. Uh, and it's something that I have struggled against with my dad. As far as greater, uh, it's something that's just, it's been an issue. And I think you don't have to see that specifically in Chicano, Mexican-American communities. I think as a whole, there is a masculinity that is kind of rooted in violence and in subduing people around you. And you see that even in how teenage boys interact with each other, where they aren't ever physically intimate with each other, unless they're like hitting each other as a joke, right? Uh and there's jokes about it too, where like you, you're 14 sitting with your 14 year old homie and you can't touch thighs when you're sitting next to each other. Cause that's gay. So it, it's a lot of little things like that. Um, but also the big things of once you start getting and picking at the little things, like why can't you touch another man and have it just be this platonic friendship affection? Um, then maybe you can start picking at the bigger things like the violence that is inherent in a lot of masculinity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was just like, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, um, I, I spent a couple years teaching in South Korea. And I remember, like uh, I taught in a middle school there and the, the male students that, who were friends would often hold hands, would often like um, touch each other in a completely platonic way that you would never see in, um, in my hometown, like rural Missouri. Um, so I do think it is cultural. Um, and I do think it like plays this role in like, when you have to live up to this cultural idea of masculinity, it creates this dissonance in you that leads to loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, like, like, you know, you're exploring in this piece, you touch on that. So I'm curious, do you think that like writing and reading can play a role in alleviating some of that loneliness? I think we talk a lot about giving models to young people. And very often it's like models of, um, uh, it's like the Twitter or like Instagram conversation around uh, don't protect your daughter's teacher son's better, right? 
So I think that is part of what I want to get at. If a teenage boy reads something like this, and I'm not going to say, you know, my writing will have that much power, but read something where other teenage boys, where men are affectionate, are soft, and don't have to be violent, defensive of themselves. Maybe that will affect the way that they present themselves in the world. So I I imagine as you're writing this, um, you have like an idea of your readership in your head, like who might be reading this. Um, Does that inform the decisions that you make as you're writing it? Yeah, of course. And I think that that is especially important in YA. Um, When I started writing, I used to say I was writing to my mom because that's why I wanted to be able to read it. But as I have continued writing, I really think the goal for me is for teenage Latino boys to pick this up. Uh, I want them to read this and to say, hey, I connect with this character and maybe maybe it's one of the things that pushes them towards a softer masculinity where they don't have to be aggressive, they don't have to be lonely, they don't have to like close up their emotions and everything. When I'm reading this, I, I do keep thinking about like where I grew up and I think that there could be some um, crossover here as far as like an appeal to young men growing up in, in these rural communities in America where the, the this kind of like masculinity and machismo that you talk about in like Latin culture is very similar to like rural American kind of lift yourself up by your bootstraps culture. So um, is, is that your hope? So Salinas is actually really rural. It's an agricultural mm-hmm. town. So you seeing that connection, seeing that crossover, I think to me is you are seeing my background as this kind of California farm boy. Uh, but also, definitely, I, I when I think about writing to an audience, I think I am prioritizing a certain group, but that does not mean I'm keeping other people out. Even when I write Spanish, I think about, okay, I want the Spanish speakers to understand what is being said and see it fully as just words on the page. I don't, I don't italicize my Spanish for that reason. But I also, when I have bigger pieces in Spanish, I have to think about if a reader comes to this and doesn't speak Spanish, can they understand what's happening? Can they understand what's being said here? Mm-hmm. If they can't, to some extent, I think of it as a failure of the writing because, you know, even some Latinos don't speak Spanish. Uh, but as a whole, I do think writing for me should prioritize the community that I am trying to reach, but that does not necessarily mean I'm excluding other people. I I love the idea that, um, you know, like that idea that where you, where you're from, like it's a rural community that's really not, I imagine any different from the community in a lot of ways, not any different from the community that I grew up in. And I, I think for me, like fiction is really about building empathy right? For communities that are different than you or people that are different than you. So I just love the idea that um, someone in my hometown might pick this up, like, and maybe you were writing it with a kid from your hometown in your head, but that it could appeal to them as well. Um, And with the rhetoric today, to give those kids a chance to see the, the similarities between these two communities, I think would be great. Yeah, to me, there is so much connection between this perceived image of rural America and what to me is a Latino community, especially in California. Those communities are poor. They are often very rural and separated from big cities. Uh, Lots of farm workers, lots of migrants, lots of working class people. 
And it, to me, writing about Salinas is writing about the changing, growing image of the United States. It is dealing with all the issues that are paramount everywhere else. It's just not in a place you'd expect it. You don't often picture California and think rural farm working community. But it is. Yeah. You know, everyone I know that's that's lived there, you know, they, they say that the majority of the state is, uh, you know, farming towns, right? Yeah. It's also very conservative, which is another aspect that people don't get at. They don't understand. They, they see California as this liberal haven, um, which I guess, you know, not going into the politics side of things, but in a conservative standpoint, as long as like, for me, in a Catholic background, in a very traditional household background with my mom and my dad and a couple siblings. Uh, it's just those ideas are there. Those traditional conservative ideas are there, are very much a part of the community, are very much a part of how rural Californians grow up. So when I see somebody from Missouri, from Arkansas, from the South, wherever, I'm going to see somebody who grew up much more similarly to me than somebody coming out New York or DC or any big city. Well, um, you know, raised Catholic, uh, you know, grew up doing work on farms. I mean, yeah. you and I have way more in common than we, than we have uh, differences. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that this is a YA novel. So there's, there's some criticism out there that MFA programs um, are just for people who are writing a certain kind of like literary work, um, whatever literary means to <laughs> that group of people. But I'm, I'm curious what it was like um, writing YA in the MFA program. It's something that I knew I was going to do from the very beginning. Uh, my writing journey began at the Vona workshop, which is the Voices of Our Nations. It is an all POC writing workshop, the only one in the country, I think. And there I worked with Daniel Jose Older, who is, has published quite a few YA novels. And he's the first person that gave me that push towards writing. So I knew I was going to write YA. And part of the decision on where to go for me was that exactly. Like, where is this writing going to be accepted? Uh, once I was actually there, once I was in the space, my peers were very accepting of the program. None of them pushed back on it. If anything, they critiqued it just as they would literary fiction. No one said this was beneath them. Nobody really like ignored my writing or anything. They, they asked questions of it. Um, they pushed at it that way. I think a few of the faculty maybe did not understand that I was not writing their type of literature. And so that was frustrating at times just because in a workshop, you don't really have a choice. If a certain professor is teaching the writing workshop this quarter, you got to take it. So there were some frustrations there, but I kept writing my work. I still received feedback from my peers. I may have ignored feedback from a couple very famous writers at UCR, <laughs> Good but you, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> They just didn't connect with the writing. They asked me questions that told me they were not willing to see the writing for what it was. And I'm like, not gonna waste my time sitting there trying to tell um, a literary writer, my YA fiction is just as important as your writing. And I think this brings up a really good point for anyone who's thinking of applying to MFA programs. It, I think it's really important to do your research on the professors that are working there um, to see if maybe your writing interests align um, because a lot of, um, I mean, these are these are working writers that are teaching in these programs. They, they're mm -hmm. not teachers by by trade, right? Um, so 
I hope the answer is yes. Were there some professors that were, were pretty supportive of your, your YA work and were helpful and gave you some good feedback? Yeah, can I name drop or is that from Yes, please, name drop. All right, dude, Nalo Hopkinson is a god. Um, I only applied to UCR because she was there. She writes YA. She also does sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I took a class with her my very first quarter there. She was the type of person where I could just walk up into her office and she hadn't read the pages. She ended up being on my thesis committee at the very end. But my whole two years there, she never read the pages. I just walk in and be like, this is what I'm working on now. Do you have thoughts? And she'd be like, yeah, let me think about it. And then she'd just like spill. She'd have all these ideas, all these books, all these things, along with the added bonus of she'd drop, uh, she would name drop herself, right? She'd be yeah. like, you know, I'm writing a comic with Neil. And it's like, Neil, like, and she's like, yeah, Neil Gaiman. Like, <laughs> all right, dude, I get it. You're famous. You're cool. Yeah. But she was very supportive of the work. Uh, after she, So the first time she ever read my pages was as my thesis committee person. Uh, we're still emailing about this. And I submitted this thesis at the start of June. So she still sends me emails. Apparently she woke up the other night thinking about my project and just typed up an email at like three in the morning. So I definitely had her. Um, there were a couple other faculty, Michael Jaime, Leila Lalami, and Alex Espinosa, who are not YA writers themselves, but were very willing to understand that I was not trying to write literary fiction, that maybe sometimes the sentence wasn't my focus, but more so the plot and the feeling of it all. Well, that's amazing. I'm, I mean, most of these programs don't have any writers that are doing YA. So just the fact that there's one and she's like amazing yeah. is enough reason for any YA writing listeners out there to apply to UC Riverside. No, and, hell yeah. Nalo Hopkinson is such a generous person. And I, I am blessed to have had the chance to just walk into her office for two years and be able to talk to her about writing. It's amazing. Some of these professors, like, uh, they, they really, <laughs> they kind of blow my mind with the, somehow they find the time to help us with our writing when they're writing their own books and they're doing, you know, uh, interviews and like tours and all this stuff. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the program a bit more. The, the MFA in Creative Writing and Writing for the Performing Arts at UC Riverside is a two-year mm -hmm. program that yep. offers study in fiction, poetry, nonfiction, screenwriting, and playwriting. According to the website, the program requires students to major in one of those genres, but encourages them to explore the others. So you earned your MFA in fiction, but did you take workshops in other genres? So I did not take workshops in other genres. I did take seminars in other genres. My reason for not taking workshops in other genres was just I was working on the novel the whole time. Mm -hmm. And workshop was my space to continue turning in pages, to have a reason to keep turning in pages. Mm -hmm. uh, the poets really wanted me to take workshop with them because I, I guess I post poems on Instagram. It was never my intention to, but they keep telling me I'm a poet. Uh, but it was encouraged. There were lots of people who did take multiple genres. One of our fiction people uh, took lots of screenplay classes to the point where one of the screenplay faculty, he was his favorite student, but he was a fiction writer. So did the other students in the program find those workshops helpful to what they were doing? Like if they were screenwriters and they were taking fiction workshops, did they tend to like um, that instruction? Did they find that it helped them on what their, their primary genre was? I believe so. I think everyone was really excited about this. Everyone was always happy to take a class outside our genre. Uh, it, it informs your writing in your primary field. Like 
when you're a fiction writer, you're very focused on specific things. Uh, as a fiction writer, I don't know what those are unless a nonfiction writer or a poet makes fun of me for it, right? Uh, but when you when you talk to poets, you know they're super focused on the prose, the word choice, how a certain line sounds and feels in your mouth. And there were a few fiction writers who took poetry classes, and that's what they'd bring back. They, they'd come back with their prose the next quarter, and you could tell they were choosing their words a lot more carefully. They were focused on the line level a lot more than they were before. And revision, it, too. Uh, I would say, you know, taking yeah, yeah. a poetry workshop can be really good for revision because whereas if you're if you're writing a longer story, sometimes, you know, you, you'll you'll think, oh, that paragraph seems fine. But then, you know, poets are parsing every single word, you know, everything's important, right? It's down to the damn word. They will <laughs> critique how it sounds, how it feels. Like when I say, you know, I think about how a word feels in my mouth. I didn't make that up. Some poet said that to me and I'm like, you know, I've never thought about that, (laughs) but it is helpful. And one of the things is they tell you to read your fiction out loud to see how it feels, to see how it flows. And even these pages that I read to you, I hadn't read before. This was my first read through. And I'm noticing that there are a few commas missing. Um, I'm noticing that the pauses don't align with the way that I put them on the page. So I'm going to need to go back and do that at some point and just, reevaluate my own writing now that I've heard it and kind of felt how it feels when it's being read. Yeah, I've heard writers say that they read their work out loud. I've, I've also heard some who run it through like uh, text-to-voice apps to hear it back to themselves. Um, is reading your work out loud part of your revision process normally? So it is now, and I will attribute that partially to the poetry seminar that I took and the encouragement of the professor who is Morgan Parker uh, to just to read, to, to look at the work vocally and think of it in some ways as a performance. Just because it's on the page doesn't mean it won't ever be performed. You know, we still read our writing. So when I'm right. looking at this, part of it is th- there are certain rules, I think, that aren't necessarily rules, but just how I think about it in my revision. And one of them is, does this sound like somebody would actually say this shit? Because if not, it don't matter how pretty it look on the page. It's still bullshit. Right. Uh, so that, that's part of it. Like, does the voice sound like when I, when I read this, when I say this, does it sound genuine? Does it sound like somebody would say this? And also, yeah, like just the pausing, the inflection, the like, where, where does this sentence ask me to stop and give it a break? So are you like hearing voices from like people in your neighborhood, like growing up, like when you're thinking about characters and the way their voices sound? Oh, hell yeah, dude. I think that's one of the most important things for me. And all of my writing has always been like multi-narrative. So the voice is always really significant. So there, there's entire projects when I'm going to start writing a new character, right? Like it's it's always somebody I knew. Um, so the baseline is there. I know what they kind of should sound like. Mm-hmm. But then once I decide to make certain changes with them, and once I decide, all right, this person is into this kind of thing, how does that affect their voice? So for me, Eddie is this white Mexican, um, middle class, got got opportunities in school that maybe some other people don't. So he speaks in proper sentences, not that much slang. When I write his cousin, who's a little bit less privileged, who's got less money, who's out on the streets more, that motherfucker sounds entirely different. <laughs> he cuts off the ends of words. He puts words together that aren't really things. Um, to me, it's a very NorCal slang, 
because that's what he grew up around. So he's not going to sound like the dude who goes into AP classes, right? He's going to sound like right. the dude who's out on the street all day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we talk as writers, we talk a lot about seeds for stories. And uh, sometimes for me, it's a voice, right? Mm-hmm. It's a voice that suddenly pops into my head. And that's the first thing that I know about a story. And then it just takes off from there. So I also saw on the website that the program encourages students to take classes in other departments. So were there courses that you took outside of the, um, the English department? Yeah. So there is a requirement for us to take, or I guess, you know, I graduated already. There was, there was a requirement for me to take at least one class entirely outside of creative writing. I took quite a few more mostly because I, I'm, I think, I think of myself as more than a writer. I think I'm an academic and that has led me now to the PhD. But I took a class in education, which was called Latinos in Education, and it was entirely around um, education. Like, it was very culturally significant to me in the community it focused on, but it was around education policy and history. I took a class in ethnic studies called Borderlands, Borders, Borderlands, and the Ch- and Chicano Studies, which was, I think at this time, a very important class to take, but it's about ice it's about border violence it's about um to some extent how the act of crossing is an act of trauma that never leaves the community so if i'm writing about immigrants like the father figures like the parent figures since most of my characters are americans to some extent uh i think it has to inform who they are that they can be mean they can be strict but it's for a reason so as you were taking those courses, did you find some of that information like was working its way into your writing? A hundred percent. And I think this is why I was saying that fiction writing is historically informed. There are certain things that I know implicitly from having grown up in a community like this, but there are there's history behind it that I have never been taught. So one of those being that California, which you don't think of it as, but California was one of the battlegrounds for school desegregation in the 60s with the Nixon administration. And the busing issue really started out here to some extent. There were communities in in Oxnard burning down school buses so the Mexicans wouldn't go to school with the white kids. So that's back in the 60s. But I think part of that also was that AP classes were created after desegregation because that's where the white kids went. Once you had schools that were integrated, you still needed a place for all the privileged white kids to go. And that's what AP classes were meant as. That's what gifted and talented education was. So when I think about that, and then I tell you one of my, one of my narrators is a kid who's in the gate and AP classes and the other one never had those opportunities. I'm telling you, these children live segregated lives from each other. They go to the same high school, but they never interact. They may never see each other going to the same high school. And also their life outcomes will be entirely different. So that's, that's part of the writing process. You know, Eddie's got his life made in this book. He's, he's a gay kid, yeah, but he has these educational opportunities that his cousin is never going to have. And his cousin, whenever I visit Miguel's story, is always going to be about the school-to-prison pipeline. How is his community, his opportunity limiting him and pushing him towards prison? Um, I think it's cool that UC Riverside encourages you all to take courses outside of, um, like, outside of writing courses. And I don't, I don't think that's typical. 
I, I don't think so either, but I think it's been very helpful for my peers because everyone took a class that aligned with their interests. Uh, my Southern friend who's also writing a YA book took like religion classes, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what he's writing about in the book, and it's a YA book, is faith, is religion, and how that is such a presence in the South. And there's always more to learn that can inform the writing process. And I think having a program that encouraged that is such a cool thing. Well, and it looks like uh, UC Riverside also um, provides the opportunity to take a lot of different courses. Because I was looking and it says that in the two years you're there, you're required to take 14 courses plus the thesis hours. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm guessing that it's on a quarter basis there. Yeah, so it's a quarter-based system, fall, winter, and spring. I don't know of anyone who took classes in the summer. Maybe it's possible, but I just don't know of it, and it would probably have to be paid for out of pocket. But as far as the fall, winter, and spring situation, excuse me, we took three classes a quarter just as the baseline requirement. So one of them is workshop. The other two are up to you. I think 10 of those classes throughout the time there, like you said, it's about 12 to 14 classes total that you take. Mm -hmm. 10 of them, I think, are required to be in the writing program. You can petition for some of them if you want to take more outside the program. But for the most part, those are going to be your writing seminars. But you can also take a fourth class every quarter. I did that one quarter. It was a mess. It was just a lot to overload myself with four classes a quarter. But there there was a lot of opportunity to take a ton of different classes. I I have covered almost every genre at this point in just in two years. Um, so, so what's a typical workshop look like? How many students are usually in there? So in my time there, my cohort was five people. The cohort behind before me was five people. The current cohort, the, the first year cohort as I graduated was four people. So there was nine fiction people in workshop. We did allow other people, but that was always down to the discretion of the professor. So certain professors would allow it, and we'd end up with a fiction workshop of 12 people, three of them being out of our fiction group. But usually it was all, you know, nine to 12 of us in a room together. We would each get the opportunity to go twice. So we'd take turns. It would usually be, since classes are three hours long, we would do an hour long on each person. So every single class section, we do three people and we just rotate through until we hit everyone twice. Yeah, I was curious how many times you would actually get to workshop. And since the courses are only um, on a quarter basis, but um, yeah, I think in, in my workshops, even like semester by semester, I think the most I've ever workshopped is three. So it sounds like you're still getting plenty of time to workshop your stuff. Yeah, and maybe the length isn't as much as we would get elsewhere because we tried to keep it between like 15 and 25 pages and most people stuck to like 20 pages at a time. But it was it was a soft limit. Sometimes people would submit 30 pages and it's it's a kind of like generosity thing between us, right? If a classmate brings in writing and they've always given you good feedback, you're going to read as much of it as you can. And if you just can't get to all of it, they understand, they know. So let's talk about funding a little bit. It seems a little tricky there at UC Riverside, which, you know, isn't particularly uncommon in coastal schools, I think. Um, But according to the website, every first year student gets tuition remission and a base stipend for the year of around $4,500, which Mm -hmm. I imagine doesn't go very far in Riverside. 
Um, nah. And then second year students, it seems, can apply for TA positions, but there's no guarantee of funding. So I'm, I'm curious how funding um, shook out for you. Okay, so I was accepted with the understanding that I was going to be fully funded. Okay. Uh, like you said, my first year, I got that stipend. That shit did not go very far. Uh, <laughs> and I was living cheap, right? I was, I was living in a house with three other people, not the greatest living situation, lots of drama involved there, but my rent was only 500 bucks, so I made it work. Um, other people I know of were living in the apartment buildings near campus, and that was up to like a thousand bucks a month. So lots of difference there. I managed to make it work without taking out a loan, without asking for money from anyone, because I also did the Gluck Fellowship, which is a teaching fellowship. You go, you teach 12 one-hour sessions to local elementary schoolers, and they give you like five grand. But that was a separate fellowship that I had to apply for. Well, when, you're, when your stipend's uh, 4500 five grand, grand sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So that first year, I made that shit work, but just barely. And I'm telling yeah. you, just barely. Like, going into year two, we didn't get paid for the first time until we start school in September. I didn't get paid until October, dude. So I went from year one, I showed up in Riverside with maybe like a 1000 2000 bucks in my bank account. I made the stipend in that 5K go as far <laughs> as that shit would. Yeah went through the summer like penny pinching like i can't go outside i know it's summer in socal but we're not driving to the beach we ain't got gas money um so you were living the starving artist life a little bit there yeah but i did not have to take out loans and that was the goal yeah so i'm curious did did a lot of your um classmates have to take out loans like do you have a sense of like how many people in the second year got those TA positions and how many people had to figure it out on their own? Everyone got a TA position. In their second year? In their second year, it, it might not be guaranteed on the website. Maybe that's their mm-hmm. way to like cover their ass. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, every second year who wanted to teach got a teaching position. That's great. And we rotated, we did different stuff. You know, it wasn't glamorous. I was a TA two quarters in like huge classes, like hundreds right. of students in that in that auditorium space. But at least once in the second year, everybody also got to teach their own workshop. That sounds fun. Yeah, I don't have the opportunity to do to teach creative writing courses here as part of my program, but um, I would love to have that experience. It, it was really cool, especially because, so I guess because of the way that... Um, graduate studies and teaching in college works, we're not the teacher of record, right? Like we still have a professor who's in charge, but they don't ever show up. We talk to them, we tell them what we're going to do, and they kind of trust us with it. And that may come down to whatever faculty member you end up working with. But as far as I know, they might show up once to kind of like observe. But for the most part, we got to teach that workshop once out of the year that we were teaching. And it did seem like the faculty trusted us, like they had faith in us to teach writing to the best of our ability and we're not, you know, hover parenting. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that they like um, trusted you um, to handle the class on your own because I know you're a first generation college student. So I wanted to ask if you found UC Riverside to be a welcoming place to study and write. So I think this question needs the context that so yeah, I'm first generation. I came out of a community where, you know, graduating class of like 600 plus, maybe 50 or less of us would go to a four year college. Um, I don't know what the retention 
percentages after that would be, but that is where I came from. And I went to uh, Vassar College in New York, which is a very like white liberal arts school, very prestigious, I guess, in the sense that most people there are upper middle class. They've been set up for that. Mm-hmm. My experience there was not good. It was unhappy in a lot of ways. And some of it is like little stuff, right? Like uh, I had the same major advisor for four years and this woman called me Marcus, both to my face and in text when she had access to my records and my name is Marcos, or if you can't pronounce that, like Marcos, right? Right. But she went out of her way to replace that O with a U every chance she got. Some stuff like that, bigger Mm -hmm. stuff like, you know, I'm the only non-white person in the room sometimes. And I had that same expectation of grad school. My understanding was grad school is going to be just as white, just as middle class. Uh, It's just people with privilege in the room. That's not what I got. I showed up at a school where UCR is a Hispanic serving institute. It is a very old Hispanic serving institute. So it's been doing this work for a really long time. It is also one of the first schools to have created a like queer student center. It was very accepting in a lot of ways that I honestly just did not expect. And another aspect of that is the faculty. I've mentioned that I had quite a few faculty that I enjoyed working with. I think I hear and I read about POC and MFA programs talking about how all their faculty are white. Nobody understands what they're writing. It's not enjoyable. All their peers are white. Nobody understands what they're writing. It's not enjoyable. I, my experience was so good at UCR. Like I had a hell of a good time, dude. I would show up, I'd joke around and it's, it's big stuff sometimes. Like all of my thesis committee was people of color and maybe they don't have my same background, but they were willing to understand some of it. And some of it is just small stuff. Like I could show up in the room and be loud as fuck and nobody would tell me like, can you please calm down? So I will say community-wise, I had a really good experience. It was a diverse program for me. Uh, I will not say that's that's everyone's experience. I know some of my peers did not feel the same way. So I'm speaking specifically, you know, to the fiction program there. And as far as the greater community, I'm one of the only people who actually, I think, went and did stuff around campus, but I spent time in the native student's office as well as the Chicano student's office. And the undergrads were so friendly. They were so welcoming. They, there was community in this school. So I think for POC, this has got to be one of the best programs in the country. And like the money issue kind of sucks for that reason, because it'd be nice if the money was there with the community, but the community is definitely there. And it's not just for my experience, which is, you know, a brown man. I think some of my peers were queer. Um, Some of my peers were women of color and all across the board. Obviously, we still had white men in the program and everyone seemed to enjoy this equally. I think everyone felt welcomed and respected in the same way. That's so good to hear. I'm I'm so glad that you had a good experience there, especially considering that you didn't have a great experience as an undergrad. Um, and I hope that you have an equally good experience at Texas Tech and your God, PhD I hope program. so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up, do you have any advice for people who are considering an MFA program? Um, don't go unless they fucking pay you. That's the first one. You don't want to take out loans for this degree because like you, you don't need the degree to be a writer. 
I see it said over and over again, you do not need to put yourself in debt for this degree. Just start writing that damn book. If you are set on going to an MFA, look for the money, but also look for faculty who are going to support you. That doesn't necessarily mean in the way that I've said other POC, POC with your background or something like that, or other queer folks, anything like that. It's look at these professors, uh, look at what they write, look at who they are, maybe email some of these professors, ask them, what are your thoughts on this kind of stuff? Most of them will respond. Some of them won't, you know, that sucks, but some of them are also a little bit busier than others. If they have online personas, follow them on Twitter, see what they say publicly, because that will tell you a whole lot about what they're going to do privately once they have your work in their hands. As far as other stuff, honestly, it sucks, but I think you could go to a program that is historically great. And if the cohort sucks, your experience is going to suck. And, you know, I guess I might be shooting myself in the foot there because I may just be saying entire cohorts across the country suck. (laughs) But sometimes it's just you don't get along with people. And if you don't get along with the people that you are trusting to read your work, you are not going to have a good time. Yeah, community is so important in these programs, um, especially when you're putting yourself out there and writing really personal things in workshop. So Yeah, so I, I think a little addendum onto there to finish is look at what the cohorts have looked like. Because for us, our fiction cohort was POC and queers. It, it was, that was us. Um, we, we still had our white, it was like, you know, we had our two gay men, uh, white men. We had two POC, but it, it was this mix in that way. Our nonfiction group was white women. So there was tension there when people would come in who didn't fit that. And that's not to say the white women were the problem necessarily, but sometimes there's just a disconnect And if you're the only person who doesn't fit that idea and the rest of them are writing kind of to the same identity or to the same ideas, there's going to be tension and you don't want that. So look at their cohort. Look at who you'd be writing with if you actually go. I think it's great advice. And honestly, like all of this information is really good. This is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, because this is the kind of information that's hard to find on the website, but hearing it from you and your experience, I think it's going to be really helpful to anyone who's considering applying to UC Riverside. So thank you so much for, for stopping by and talking to me. Yeah, of course. Again, thank you for having me.